Good afternoon and welcome to BibleQuest Wednesday edition. I'm Jeff Smelter next in Pennsylvania and Joe Works is in a truck somewhere in New Jersey. No, New York, New York, some new place. Utica, I'm in Utica, New York for a few hours here. All right. Uh, we have a guest host today, Joe. We've got a, a guest, Jeremy DeHutt from LaGrange, Kentucky, is going to be talking with us about 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to BibleQuest. Thank you for having me, guys. Looking forward to what you're going to do with us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll be getting to that in just a moment. Do you want to give us a one-line a one teaser as to what we're going to do in 2 Corinthians 4? Yeah, we're going to be looking at principles for glorifying ministry. Principles for glorifying ministry. Okay, yes, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what that's all about in just a minute. But before we do that, Jeremy, you're involved in something called Appian Media. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, back in 2016, there were several individuals uh, that had experience in creating media, uh, specifically video. Um, design, things like that. And they were looking for resources to help teach Bible classes. And one of the things they were looking for were uh, maps and images and videos of Bible lands. So they created a nonprofit to travel over to those places, specifically Israel to start, and to start creating free video content to assist Bible study. Um, and so since 2016, I've been one of the co-hosts helping to create some of that content. Um, just last fall, a couple of us went over to Turkey to start a project on the seven churches of Asia from Revelation 1 through 3. Um, so that's one of the things that I've been doing for the last couple of years. I think I, I saw at least one example of one of those videos where you were over there in Israel with, um, uh, who was it? Barry Britnell. Yeah, Barry Britnell. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you kind of, it's kind of a informal kind of a conversational uh, tour through through some of the sites over there? It was. Uh, Barry has traveled there several times over the years. He takes tour groups, uh, usually annually. Lord willing, he'll start that back up this year. Um, but yeah, he, he leads me through. We've started leaning more toward a documentary style where we're interviewing different archaeologists and historians and people that are on the ground interacting with the material culture. Um, so it's more of an apologetic approach that okay. reinforces the biblical truth. All right. um, but anybody who wants to go and look at that content, it's free video content that you can use. Um, you can go to our website, appianmedia.org, or you can find us on Facebook and access any of that stuff. You want to spell that, appianmedia.org? I can. It's appianmedia.org. Okay, appianmedia.org. All right, great. Well, uh, let's get sure. into... Yeah, Joe? Well, I was going to say, uh, I'll give my own plug. I mean, I, I've used the material, uh, not all of it yet, but uh, everything that I've gone through is just very well done, very biblical, um, uh, just extreme, extremely good resource material. Um, it, very, very helpful. So uh, props to, to all of those guys at, at Appian Media. Sounds good. Uh, I liked what I saw. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Jeremy, uh, let's just turn it over to you and uh, you walk us through whatever it is we're going to see here. Okay, well, I was just, uh, I was sharing with you guys earlier. Um, we have a group of young people here that worship at Oldham Woods in the Grange that requested we study through 2 Corinthians this quarter. Um, the reason for that is that most people study through 1 Corinthians. You know, we make sure that we talk about what causes divisions and all of that kind of stuff. And we talk about church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5 and 
uh, purity from chapter six, and we get to love and um, miraculous gifts, all those things, but we don't always get to second Corinthians. And so yeah, we started, what's that? Yeah, I think that's, that's typical. I think that's often the case. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I thought it was a great request. Um, so we started this quarter long study through second Corinthians <laughs> and just kind of setting the stage for it, thinking about Paul's approach to them, you know, the, the time that he had been there, the time Um, the the number of times he's been writing to them, answering questions and correcting them. Um, He's had kind of a tense relationship with them. And he's been reinforcing in 2 Corinthians the ministry that he's done, Um, the work that he's done among them for the sake of God and trying to shore up their faith in what they've heard and in their personal relationship, uh, especially in the first first half of the book. And so one of the questions that we asked when we got to chapter four was, you know, put yourself in Paul's place. You've, you've been doing this work for the Lord as an apostle, and you've been interacting with these people that have been difficult to work with. Uh, they haven't always responded well. There's been infighting. You've had issues in that church, ongoing issues. He explained in the beginning of the book that he's intentionally held off visiting them again because he doesn't want to come and have a, a stern, hard time. Um, that would be really hard to keep going ministry-wise if that was your experience. And so looking at chapter four from the perspective of a a phrase that he uses twice, Uh, he uses it once in uh, chapter four, verse one, and then again in chapter four, verse 16, when he says, so we do not lose heart. You know, it'd be really easy if you were in Paul's place to lose heart working through those circumstances. And then you throw in the list that he gives you in chapter 11 of all the things that he's endured so far as an apostle. Um, It'd be really discouraging. You know, some people would say burnout or whatever else, and they might just throw in the towel. So that, that was kind of our approach to uh, second Corinthians four. What do you guys think about that question, that, that perspective? Take us back to just, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to create too long a front porch here before we get into what you want to talk about, but I I am intrigued your comment. Go back uh, to what you said about Paul saying that he was delaying coming there. Yes. Reason for doing so. Uh, He's in Ephesus when he writes first Corinthians and then he moves on up to the Northwest and he gets up to Macedonia and he writes second Corinthians. He is on his way, but I'm intrigued by your observation here. Show us, Show us this that you were referring to. Yeah, so over in uh, chapter one, he has to explain to them why he hasn't come back. You know, he, he's expressed a desire to return to them. Um, that's certainly his desire. Um, but you go to verse 15. Um, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. But that's not exactly what happened. Right. And so he he has to explain, look, was I misleading you? Was I intentionally saying I wanted to and then didn't follow through? Um, Was it a tooth answer? And that's not the case at all. Um, He was wanting, you come down to the end of that chapter, he was wanting to spare them. He wanted to make sure that when he finally came, it wasn't as a disciplining parent again, 
but that it would be an encouragement. So chapter two, verse one, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Wait, did you say papal visit? <laughs> no, painful. Oh, painful. painful. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Now be an entirely different conversation. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Now, so, so that it, I got chapter one verses 15 and 16. Yep. Uh, the idea that I had it, I would have liked to have come to you and then Macedonia and then back to you. Reconcile that with what we see back in chapter First uh, Corinthians, chapter sixteen. Yes. Where before Paul ever leaves Ephesus, uh, he tells the the brethren in Corinth that he will. This is First Corinthians sixteen five. Yep. I'll come to you when I shall have passed through Macedonia. So we seem at, at that point his plan was to go to Macedonia first and then to Corinth. So how do you put all that together? Yeah. So I think it goes back to his. Um, it goes back to his explanation later on in Second Corinthians one and the first part of chapter two, where he's explaining that the the material that he's already sent to them and his the report back and how they're responding to it, their additional questions, that he is adjusting his plans based on the information that he gets. So would we assume that when he wrote when he wrote Second Corinthians says I would have liked to have come to you first, yeah. he's referring to what his original plan was, even before he wrote First Corinthians. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. So let's uh, let's. Okay. So with with that setup, we understand that it's a it's a it's a delicate situation. I guess it you is. Say, Corinth, it and is. he he knows he's got to deal with it, but it's not like on the top of his list of things that he's just eagerly joyful about getting to do. Right. There's a little bit of anxiety. Um, there is lack of a better word. He says he says he has care anxiety searches later on in Second Corinthians. Right, an example. That's so, right. So, all right, take us to chapter four. So, getting getting to chapter four, when you look at the historical and cultural context of of the city of Corinth and the influences that would have been on the saints there, um, as you put the two epistles together, you recognize there are there's a different way of thinking and a different way of evaluating teachers. You saw some of that in 1 Corinthians as they were talking about Paul versus Apollos, which one was more polished, who do you follow, who do you listen to? And there seems to be some more of that here where Paul is having to justify his work as an apostle, that, that his work was legitimate. You know, in chapter three, he's talking about the, the ministry of the new covenant, that they're ambassadors for God, that they're really sufficient, that that the lives of the Corinthians themselves, these individual saints, are their letters of recommendation. They don't have to walk around with PhDs and letters from impressive people. And so he's, tra he's trying to justify his ministry and his work among them in this delicate situation. Which is, which is absurd that he has to do that. When you right. Think um, he, he's later going to talk about the signs of an apostle were done among them. I mean, the evidence yeah. was there. Yes. And yet he's, okay, all right, go ahead. But you think about and I think this is kind of where our culture is too. Um, you think about what you know about the, the totality of Paul's life. What was his life like? Um, especially after he becomes a Christian. You know, you have, you have Philippians where he describes, this is what I was prior to Christ. Uh, I had some, some standing. I had some political standing. I had some religious standing. I had some educational standing. But I count all those things for loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And then from the very beginning of his life as a Christian, he's told how much he has to suffer for Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he lists some of that suffering. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but it's representative. 
these are the things that he has endured. And you compare that to what other teachers would be saying. You know, if you follow my teaching, you can live your best life now. You know, you're going to be the picture of health and success and all of these things. And, and Paul is combating that ideologically. And he comes down to 2 Corinthians 4 and says, this is what we're like. We're not going to give up. We're not going to lose heart. Verse 1 and verse 16. And then we'll just kind of work down through the text uh, just a little bit at a time. Yeah. Um, instead of me doing all the talking. You guys okay doing some reading? Uh, sure. Okay, let's, let's do it. Um, one of you guys want to read verses 1 through 2? Uh, well, Joe's not real good at reading, so I'll Joe, can you read? <laughs> oh, he froze or something. It did freeze. That's he a did. bad time for All right, well, I guess that's slamming. on you then. <laughs> All right, well, I was, gonna, uh, I was hoping Joe actually would read, but I'll, I'll, I've got it. First, okay. Second Corinthians chapter 4, you just want the first two verses. Just the first two verses for now. All right, therefore, seeing we, and I'm reading from the American Standard here, so okay. it's a little bit of an older style. Sure. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we obtained mercy, we faint not, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Okay. So just in one of the first principles that we'll talk down through. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> There's oh, Joe. <laughs> someone might have caught up. Maybe. Or not. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Back. So in verse one, when he describes this ministry, um, the ESV reads, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Um, can you read yours again, Jeff? Uh, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, just verse one? Or, yeah. Okay, even as we obtained mercy, we faint not. Even as we obtained mercy. So one of the, one of the ideas there is... Paul equates the ministry that he's been given as an apostle and in teaching the gospel to Gentiles as a demonstration of God's mercy. He's been given this ministry like mercy um, or by kindness. He sees it as a kindness from God that he gets to do that. And because of that, he doesn't lose heart. And, and he manifests that even in the method that he uses as he teaches. So that's when you get to verse two. He's not going to teach in a disgraceful, underhanded, sneaky way. You know, he's not going to try to impress people or, or monkey with the message. He's not going to do that. Instead, he's just going to teach the open statement of the truth. So, okay, for his, his statement, even as we obtained mercy here. Yep. Um, so I'm trying to remember exactly how you put it. In Ephesians, Paul spends several verses in chapter three, just glorying in the fact yeah. that he is privileged to get to yes. be the one who brings the gospel, brings the good news to the Gentiles. Yes. Um, it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that here, he says, even as we obtain mercy, you're kind of connecting his statement here to that same sentiment. That, that same idea that, that this ministry is a demonstration of God's mercy to me. There's a, there's an interesting, another thought there, the, the idea that this ministry is a demonstration of God's mercy. Again, in Ephesians, in chapter two, verse seven, he'll say that in the ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The idea seeming to be part of what God was doing in, in, in making the gospel available to Gentiles, which of course was God's purpose from the get-go. Yes. But, but that it's going to be an, a demonstration of God's kindness throughout the generations. People can look back and see the magnanimity. Is that the word magnanimity? Mag- How many syllables are in that word? There are a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Of, of God. And maybe that's kind of the idea here too, then. I think so. And if you're talking about, we're looking at principles for glorifying ministry, then I need to remember this, this work that I've been given, it's, it's been given to me by God. It's not something that I've created or manufactured and it's not about me i'm trying to serve people with this this mercy that god has given me so one more thing before we move on from this we've got a lot of chapter to cover here yeah, we do time but just this word ministry i think a lot of people use this word ministry and it's kind of like the word fellowship or kind of mm. like the word all of a sudden it's a church word right and and, and what it is is the word service that's right it means service Yes. Now, it, it is a great spiritual service that we're talking about here, yes. but th- he's talking about a service that he has the opportunity to perform, right? That's right. All right, go That's take right. this on. So if we go on, let's look at verses three and four. Do we have you back, Joe? I am back on here. Thank you. Okay. So uh, would you like to read? Sure. I'll be happy to. Three and four? Yes, sir. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, I think there's a lot of nuance to these verses. Uh, A lot of cider rabbit trails we could chase, but just really quickly setting up for it, as, as teachers and preachers, anybody who's ministering the word of God, there's a responsibility to, to do the work well, to be a good steward, to make sure that you've invested the time, um, you're trying to communicate clearly, you know, you want to do the best job that you can communicating the truths of God. So we're, we're talking about the responsibility on that side of it. But assuming, assuming that we've done all of that, if someone still isn't responding to the gospel, what is verse three saying about that? Well, it's, it's saying the gospel is almost like obscured for them. Yeah. It's veiled. They, they have a hard time seeing it. I, th- I think that's what it's saying. And even in verse four, he goes on to explain a little bit more. Why is it veiled to them? God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So the God of this world, Satan? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. And, and again, we could, we could chase a lot of rabbit trails on this one. Um, I don't think Satan's going to be doing anything that we're not allowing him to do. Um, he's not going to be overruling anybody's free will. But I think it's describing that in the process of ministering the word, we have to take into account the person that's listening and whether they really want to understand and comprehend or not. I think that's the key. Do they want to understand? Yes. The second Thessalonians talks about lying signs and wonders. And yes. the people who are deceived by those are the people who do not love the truth. Yes. They don't really want the truth. And you think of Jesus talking about why he taught in parables. Um, and, and it wasn't that his word was incomprehensible in and of itself, but it's kind of like the parable of the sower. You've got different kinds of ground and same word, same seed, but there's the good ground that's going to receive it. And there's the not good ground that's going to get distracted with cares of the world or something. And this is not, this is not an excuse or justification for, 
you know, sloppy or irresponsible teaching and preaching. That's not what this is for, but it's, it's just addressing the reality, getting back to these principles that, that we're in a fight for the souls of people. God's involved, Satan's involved, the, the free will of the speaker is involved, the free will of the listener is involved. It's all of those things are a part of this. And we need to remember that. So why doesn't Paul then, when he, when he sees some in Corinth who are you know, going back to first Corinthians, yeah. they're not believing the resurrection. They're trying to justify fornication. Why doesn't he just write them off and say, well, obviously these are people who, for whom the gospel is veiled. They cannot see it because they don't want to and move on. That's a great question. So looking at the totality of the new Testament and even old Testament principles, right? Um, there's no such thing as a perfect church on this side of Christ's return. There's no such thing as the, the, a perfect Christian with perfect and full understanding. We're all in the midst of changing and growing and becoming more like Christ, every single one of us. So it's possible um, to go from being somebody who has the gospel veiled for me because I don't want to see it to being somebody who, you know what? I do want to see it. I see. So right. it's possible to make that change? I think so. I think so. And isn't that, isn't that what Paul was saying when you go back to chapter two and, and he's talking about this man that the congregation there has rebuked. And one of the reasons that he wrote according to verse nine is that he might test and see whether they're obedient and everything, you know, he's writing to see if they're going to be responsive and change and grow, not that they're going to be perfect from the outset, but that there's progress along the way. There's somebody else that comes to mind who kind of made that change. Uh, the author himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. He was kicking against the goads. Oh man, was he kicking against the goads. Uh, such a great example. So in, in those principles of ministry, we started off with, you know, God has shown mercy by giving him this ministry. And Paul understands the, the, the second principle we're looking at, that we're in a fight. We're in a fight for the hearts and the souls of people which means it's going to be hard. It's going to require some endurance and some, some uh, discernment on our part. And then you get down, uh, we'll take the next couple of verses, just a verse at a time. Um, verse five, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he's saying this ministry, I need to remember this ministry and what I'm preaching, it's not about me. It's about Christ. And he said that even back in the first Corinthians, what he proclaims is Christ crucified, right? Um, if we get all wound up thinking that our ministry or our service is about us, when we don't get the recognition that we think we are owed or that we deserve or whatever, we're going to be really tempted to, to flame out and be done and give up. Um, really, if our ministry is about ourselves, we, we probably should. But we need to think about I'm serving for Christ. I want people to know Christ. It's about Christ. Um, even over in Philippians, Philippians chapter one, when Paul is in prison and he talks about some of those men that were preaching from rivalry and conceit, he said, at least Christ is pr proclaimed. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I need to remember that, that it's about Christ. It's not about me. Mm -hmm. And then verse six, I'm really curious about uh, your all's input on verse mm -hmm. six. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What have you, what do you make of that? 
Light shall shine out of darkness, who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, I see a lot of light. There is a lot of light, <laughs> right? Old Testament references, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But you get down to the, the gist of it, the heart of it at the end of the sentence. The light has shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So we're as, as ministers of this gospel, ministers of Jesus Christ, we are shining light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you, you may see an allusion to, you know, the creation. Sure. Let there be light. Yep. Uh, in, in the prophetic book in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, uh, verse 1, 2. It's kind of interesting because... This is a passage where we anticipate Gentiles coming right. in. So in Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations, Gentiles, will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Yeah. So we see all of that. And when you look at other places in the Gospels where it talks about a light shining out of darkness. And it's connected with the arrival of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say in verse six, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Transfiguration? (laughs) maybe but what he's already alluded to in chapter three is that if you've responded to the gospel of christ you will become more like christ Mm -hmm. he's already said that that's one of the evidences of their work among them is this change that god is accomplishing in their lives through the gospel i wonder if it's more of the idea of this the the more that i look at the face of christ the more i spend time getting to know christ and i see christ uh, according to hebrews one who's the the radiance of the image of God. The closer I grow to Christ, the more I am aware of the glory of God. The the better I understand God and who he is and what he's like and what he loves and what he hates. And I see all of that in the person of Christ. Is, Is there a contrast with the end of chapter three, where he talks about Moses and um, his having a veil upon his face and the, the glory that his face shone with and, yes. and all of that. Yes, I think so. I think what he's getting at at the end of chapter three is there's this degree of change that's taking place. You know, the more I am with Christ, the more I respond to the gospel, the more open I am to the truths of the gospel, all of us are being changed. And I think he's alluding to that here in verse six, Okay, that God has shown us the glory of his glory in the person of Jesus. I'd say, Jeremy, the more I come to know his son, the more I'll come to know the glory of God. This is, I'll just tell you, this is a a little bit difficult for me because of that passage at the end of chapter three in the veil of Moses. That's a difficult passage simply because... In the Old Testament, it's a little hard to work out exactly when the veil came off and when it went on and what all the purpose was. And so it's it's a little intimidating. If I don't have that right, I'm not sure whether I get the connection from chapter four to chapter three. Is it 
similarity or contrast. You know? Yeah, and even <laughs> in chapter three, he seems to change gears and use that veil in a couple different ways. Yeah. Um, and so the, it, it's important to try to follow the thought there um, as best we can in chapter three. Well, we could, uh, we, could, we could spend all our time going back to that, but we or, need to make some progress <laughs> here. Right, let's, let's move forward a little bit. Um, would you be all right reading, starting in verse 7, read down through verse 12? 7 through 12, for 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And again, I'm reading from an older style translation here. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not unto despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death works in us, but life in you. I love those verses. I just love those verses. Um, I think it's helpful to remember, you know, there are, there are teachers in the first century in all of these major cities, but specifically in Corinth, that are, that are teaching a health and wealth version of the gospel. You know, you can, you can be a follower of whatever and have it all. You know, you can have the job, you can have the family, you can, you can engage in whatever kind of sexual activity you want. Like you can have everything. So is that, that observation, is that an observation you make simply based on the ideas Paul counters and you infer that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, you yeah. see him talking about fornication and, and seemingly addressing an attempt to justify fornication and yeah that... and you look at first corinthians 5 where you see a real life example of that amongst the group yeah right um and then you just look at some of the other cities where it's specifically addressed so new testament culture in general but then inferences from what he's specifically addressing in the text of second corinthians okay and then you look at what he is saying about his life and his ministry that it's hard. I mean, he's using all of these words. We're afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. Um, we're always being given over to death. And then you look again at his list in 2 Corinthians 11. Life has not been the easiest thing for him since becoming a Christian. And he compares, he compares their bodies to these, your version said earthen vessels. Right. Um, I'm reading from the ESV and it says jars of clay. Yeah. And if you go to a museum and you yeah. look at, you know, there's a mental picture that comes to mind there, these big yes. pottery vases. What There's a word for those things. Um, um, as far as what period they're in, they <laughs> have different names, but there's, there are different types and styles. Right. You know, there are some of those vessels that are very expensive. They're made out of more expensive material. They're more decorative. They're more ornate. Um, and then you have some that are just used for everyday use. You know, they're expensive. disposable. They're, they're all breakable. They're all breakable, but some are meant to be disposed. You know, you use them once or twice, they fall apart. It's no big deal. They'll make another one. Um, someone compared that to our, uh, our modern 
plastic bag from the grocery store. They <laughs> might make it home from that first trip, but you're not going to use them 20 times and have them last. Oh, in my house, we do. We have a whole <laughs> bin where we collect the Walmart bags and we, oh, we have a collection over and over. I carry my lunch in a Walmart bag and I get home and I stick the Walmart bag back. It goes right back in. <laughs> oh man, you're doing good if you're getting multiple uses out of them. So he compares, he compares our bodies to these temporary vessels that fall apart. They wear out. But within those vessels, he says that they've received this treasure. And so at the end of the day, when you're looking at this, this common everyday vessel that chips and falls apart, you're not impressed with the vessel. There's nothing impressive about it. It's temporary. But because it is so temporary and inexpensive, if there's something valuable inside of it shining out, it really helps highlight the value of that treasure. So... There are a lot of people, Jeremy, and if, and if this is a tangent too far That's off, okay, you go. Bring, bring us back. But there are a lot of people who uh, belittle the idea of my being dependent upon what a, a human being wrote 2,000 years ago. And if, if I read that and study that and think that I'm going to find a revelation of God therein, well, if that's the best I've got, that's the best I've got. But they'll belittle that as book religion. And they will... They will talk about if you really want to experience God's glory, to mm -hmm. kind of borrow some language here from Second sure. Corinthians, you need an inner illumination direct from God. Mm -hmm. um, Paul seems to be here saying something different than those people are saying. He seems to be yeah. saying God is content to have his message communicated through frail human beings. Absolutely. And you see that principle you see that truth played out throughout the Bible where God uses imperfect, broken, sinful people to communicate inspired truth. Um, I mean, there, there's just so many examples of that where God could have uh, communicated in some other way, but the way that he chose shows how great and powerful and incredible he is. So at, at the end of the day, the method that he's chosen is a platform to display his power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really what Paul is getting at here. He, he's not worried about living an impressive life or a life free from difficulty. He's, he's just embracing it and saying, this is what it is. And because my life is this hard and my body is, it's going through what it's going through, it's just a further way to magnify God. Which I, think, I think that's really- Later common. in Second Corinthians. Yeah, I think that's really prominent in what he's saying here. He's yeah. not he's not talking about the things that are difficult for him just to say, poor, pitiful me. No, he, no. He's talking about these things saying, look, when you see uh, when you see what we are going through, uh, you realize you realize how important this message is to us. Yes. And, and you. So from our willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ, for our willingness to expend our bodies. Yes. What you see is is the value of the life that yes. ultimately is through Christ. Well, and and God's power and his grace. So at the end of Second Corinthians, when he's talking about the thorn in the flesh that's been given to him and he prays to have it removed and God's answer is my grace is sufficient for you. Mm -hmm. You know, my strength is manifested in weakness. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to wrap all of that up into a principle, mm -hmm. one of the ways you could word that is our weakness is part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. Our weakness is a part of God's plan to manifest and highlight who God is. Okay. 
Um, and CJ, someone just someone just mentioned, you know, uh, these kind of ideas destroy the health and wealth gospel. It, it absolutely does. Um, so he's trying to highlight this this principle for glorifying ministry. Our weakness is part of God's plan. And then we'll move down uh, to verse 13. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. And he's quoting from Psalm 116. And so we kind of have to imagine it like this. Paul is saying, we have the same spirit of faith that I've read about in other places. I open up my Bible and I flip through and look at other people of faith and they've had to go through the same thing. They've had to live the same way. They've had to make the same decision. I, I heard God. I responded to it. I'm going to speak it. And so the, this other principle is the Bible says it's going to be tough, but I'm not the only one. This is just a part of the life of a disciple of God. And then, then, then we come to the next next couple of verses, verses yeah. uh, 13, 14, uh, having the same spirit of faith according to that which is written, I believed and therefore did I speak. We also believe and therefore also we speak, knowing that he that raised up the Lord Jesus yes. shall raise up us also with Jesus and shall present us with you. Jeremy, I think of a couple of other passages in Paul's writings where he makes this case we can have confidence in our resurrection yes. because of Jesus' resurrection. The same God that has promised us he'll raise us, raised Jesus. Yes. He says that in Romans, the eighth chapter in verses 10, 11, but maybe more well known, he does that in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, yeah. where he's assuring Gentiles for whom the idea of resurrection from the dead may have been a new idea. Yeah. He says, look, uh, the God who raised up Jesus will also raise us up. And I think especially in the, in the context of the Corinthian epistles, First uh, Corinthians 15, all of the time that he spends there reminding them of the fact of a bodily resurrection. Um, Do you get the you think, sense that maybe the way he says this here, yeah. that he thinks that he made progress on that issue with First Corinthians? Yeah, you don't see him stop and go on a really long chapter to explain the validity of the resurrection. He doesn't have to do that here. Yeah. He's just able to allude to it and move on. Yeah. Um, and what it, it has done, what it's, what it was meant to do, because he's saying there's something that we know and that knowledge does something for us. I'm not going to lose heart and I'm not going to give up knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us up. It's interesting to me to think about, okay, so what happened? And, and we, I, we can't spend a whole lot of time speculating. Here, yeah. I still, here you had apparently a fairly significant portion of the brethren in Corinth doubting, not even believing the resurrection from the dead. Right. The, the irony was they apparently did believe Jesus was raised from the dead, but they couldn't believe that we would be raised from the dead. Yeah. And, and yet we get here. And as you say, he doesn't feel the need to hammer that home. And if that were still a big problem, you'd think he would. Right. Well, but he doesn't. In my, in my opinion, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most comprehensive defenses for the resurrection of Jesus in the epistles. So did 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 the folks who who doubted the resurrection uh, in Corinth, did they get that letter and go, oh, wow, and like that, they're convinced? Or did they go, I don't believe that. And if these people are going to believe that, I'm out of here. And so now Paul's, <laughs> you know, Paul's only writing to the people. Speculation. Who, I don't know. But I'll tell you, when I read it, 
when I read it and how thorough he is in pointing out, look, if we don't believe in the resurrection, Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then what hope do we have here on earth? Like, what is the point? I think it's impressive as you go through the book of Acts, how often the preaching throughout the book of Acts, the, 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 the key point was the resurrection of Christ. That, yes. That, that was yes. Kind of every sermon hinged on that claim. Yeah. You think about Philippians chapter one, we were talking about this, um, a couple of friends and I, we were, we were talking about the wrestling that Paul had in the second half of Philippians one about whether he would die and go on to be with Christ or whether he was going to remain here longer to serve the Philippians yeah. and the wrestling that he had. But one of the reasons he wrestled with that is because he believed in a bodily resurrection and was looking forward to spending eternity with Christ. Um, and, and so coming back to here, it did its job. I mean, one of the reasons that he was able to keep persevering in ministry is he had the hope of a future resurrection. He wasn't uh, hyper-focused on this moment of pain or discomfort or giving his body over to death for Christ's sake. He was ultimately looking forward to the hope of a bodily resurrection. And he's going to connect this hope with what he's been saying about what he goes through in this life. Yes. He's going to talk about, okay, all this suffering, all of that. You know what? It, it's really irrelevant given the whole yes. resurrection. That's not the words he's going to say it in. How's he going to say it? Well, you come down, verse 16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for wait, us. Wait, 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 wait. Light. Oh, we're not momentary. done. We're not done. Light, but yes. light. I mean, he was yes. stoned, left for dead. I know it. And, and, and it wasn't momentary. I mean, he starts preaching, what, in the 30s? And yeah. now, you know, we're going to see him I mean, when he writes this, we're in the mid 50s, you know, yeah. it's something like 20 years. Decades. Light, momentary. Yes. Which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And there, man, there are so many different ways we could go with this. Like we've covered a whole chapter in 30, 40 minutes. Um, that threefold contrast, this light momentary affliction, he's only able to say that when he compares it with the eternal weight of glory. It's, it's light in comparison with the weight of the glory that's to come. And it's momentary compared to the eternity that we're going to be spending after this life. And so there's a perspective on life that Paul and believers have that not everybody else has. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. It's Romans 8, 18. That, that is Romans 8. I give the example when we taught through this. When I was in high school, uh, my folks let us order our letterman's jackets and the, they, they were sentimental. They took us to the place, uh, the sporting goods shop where they bought their letterman's jackets. And we lived three hours away across a mountain pass. And we had saved up and all this stuff. My jacket finally came in and my dad was going to drive me in a, a 70s Chevy Love pickup. No, like the heat was horrible. And we got 30 minutes outside of town on this mountain pass and the truck died. And it started snowing. And I, I was super practical. I was like, my dad is going to get 
some kind of tow truck out here because it's cheaper and drive us 30 minutes back into town, get the truck fixed. I'm going to have to wait for my jacket. And so in my uh, immaturity and selfishness, not thinking about the cost of the vehicle, I was complaining in the cab, man, I have waited so long for my jacket. I got to get my jacket. And we were sitting on that mountain pass for a couple of hours with no heat waiting for, we were uncomfortable. And it says a lot about my dad. When the tow truck finally arrived, dad paid the extra money to have the tow truck driver drive us over the pass to get to the sporting goods shop before it closed so I could get my jacket on time. And when I finally got that jacket, the, the cold and the misery of the last couple of hours was totally forgotten. Now that is so small of a thing. Really like that is, is such a first century, so, uh, first world problem, right? So do you still have that jacket? I do. Do you really? <laughs> when, I, when I taught this a couple of weeks ago, I got it out and wore it and it still fit. Um, and, but there are other things. There are other things heavier than whether or not I'm going to get my jacket. You know, there, there are hard things in life. And, and I like verse 16. It's really helpful. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our bodies, our physical earthly bodies are just going to deteriorate and get worse and joints are going to fail and eyesight's going to fail. But our inner self is being renewed. Just because this body, this cheap plastic bag is falling apart, there's still a treasure inside of there that we've been given that is renewing us. And there's so many passages that talk about spiritual renewal and growing. Um, Where he's going to go from here, of course, he's going to go on to talk about yes. this outer body that we dwell in as an earthly house. And yes, this temporary tent. But we're going to yeah. get a glorified one. Yes. And that's the goal. All right. Well, Jeremy, we're out of time. I thank you for joining us to walk through 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. It's a pleasure to have you today. Well, thank you. Uh, Appianmedia.com? Dot .org. Appianmedia.org. Appianmedia.org. We talk about the beginning. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Uh, Joe had problems, folks, today yeah. with his internet connection. He's on the road, uh, but uh, we missed him, but look forward to seeing him back. We should have Chase back next week. Thanks.